Good morning. My name is Rhonda Dunbar, and I'm here this morning to read scripture with you. If you have your Bibles, won't you please open your Bibles to John chapter 15. We'll be reading verse 1 through 11. And this is what Jesus spoke these words to the disciples. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rhonda. Our passage... The text that she just read for us answers for us the most important question that follows us throughout life. We are uh, confused by the times that we live in. We are curious about the way things are going to go. We are uh, reminiscent even of our own failures and shortcomings. And in other words, we, we have a very close memory of the life that we've lived uh, and some, not so much. Sometimes we wish more people would be a little bit more reminiscent on the mistakes they've made and things. But for the most part, most of us live with like this ghost that follows us around. Like, I know who you are. I know what you've done. And it takes us uh, through this journey where we're thinking, I don't know really if I stand in the Lord where I want to stand or what that text would suggest is available to me. In other words, when we hear Jesus saying, you can abide in me and I in you, we're answering for ourselves the most important question of life, which is, am I really saved? To use the biblical phrase. Am I really in Christ and is he really in me? This is a question that we ask. Doesn't matter how many church services we've attended. Doesn't matter how many dollars we've put in the giving box. It doesn't matter any of those things. There's this, there's this lingering doubt sometimes or this close association with, I don't know how this can be true because I know me. And so when we're getting into this passage of the vine and the vine dresser and all that Jesus is giving us for an image, what I want us to see here is that Jesus is answering the most important and plaguing, nagging question in all of our hearts. Do, do I belong to him? Can I, can I trust in something more than a, a hope-so system? I don't want to think about those things now because it doesn't seem like I'm near the end, so I'm just going to let you know, that work itself out and we talk in terms of scales and hopefully it'll balance it off and if I've done a few good things, maybe it outweighs some of the bad things and all that kind of stuff. We live in a, a hope so existence sometimes. Jesus is talking in very concrete terms and for, for most of us when we heard that text read, for it was a little bit scary. 
Because he's throwing down some absolutes. He's saying this is the way it is when you are in Christ. And we have to square ourselves with that saying, is that true of me? This takes place of, of a part of uh, what is the farewell discourse. This is Jesus saying, I, I want to say in my own human kind of understanding and, and, and uh, uh, comprehension that these are the most important things Jesus could say. But when you take the, all the pages of the scripture, you can't say these are more important than these. All of it is included for the story of redemption. But Jesus is drawing his disciples in close because he knows he's leaving. He knows the betrayal is at hand and he's saying the things that he wants to resonate in their hearts in this next season that they're going to go through. And in this farewell discourse, which has taken place in, in a place that we've called the upper room, didn't have that sign outside the door, but uh, in the upper room, all these amazing words of Jesus and these actions have taken place. He, he brought in his disciples to celebrate the, the last Passover meal, the annual Jewish celebration that commemorates God's withdrawal of his, of his children out of slavery in Egypt. And, and so they celebrate this year after year after year, and it's, it's one of the most important celebrations on their calendar. And Jesus draws his disciples in so they can start seeing the imagery and the fact that he's the fulfillment of this Passover. And so he starts doing and saying the things in this kind of huddle environment that are incredibly important. He's, he's already washed their feet to show them that he's the one that keeps us clean and to, to show them the union and the fellowship that they have with him. He's broken the bread and he's poured the wine and said, this is representative of the sacrifice that I'm about to give. My body is going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be spilled for you. And he's already dismissed Judas, although it was with a whisper. The rest of the team doesn't know why Judas got up and left, but Judas is in charge of the money and maybe Jesus is sending him out to get some more groceries or prepare for an offering or something. But either way, Jesus has made this significant pivot by saying to Judas, go and do what you're going to do and get it over with. Let's get this thing in motion once and for all. Jesus knows that he's sending Judas out to get the wheels of his betrayal in motion so that his sacrifice is truly at hand. And now 11 disciples, true disciples, or in the context of our scripture here, true branches, are walking with Jesus. He's got them up out of the upper room. He says, let's go to the garden, garden of Gethsemane to pray. And on their way, it would seem he's having this discourse, part of this farewell address. And these 11 disciples are the real thing. And this is really important for us to, to make sure we don't lose sight of this context because the things that we're going to say that impact our trust and our assurance and security we're going to get all squirrely with this, but Jesus is saying to those that he knows are about to blow it big time. To Peter, who's going to, in a, in a drastic way, fail Jesus and, and swear nearly in his face and deny that he even knows him because he's being arrested and the heat is on. And Jesus still says to that group of individuals, that team, you're clean because you've received my word. So he moves them out. They're heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to pray. He knows they're also going there for his betrayal. And so chapters 15 and 16 are covering some of these final words that Jesus shares with his closest friends before his arrest. And the scriptures have been full for us, not only in the Gospel of John, but in so many other places. The scriptures are full of metaphor to help us understand this saving relationship, this nagging question that we have. How can one really know they belong to Jesus? How can one really know that he loves them and that their future is secure in him? We've already uncovered the meaning of the sheep to the shepherd. We've talked about being his child, his child to our father. There's a language that shows us that we can, we are the subject to a king, a servant to a master. We are the body to the head who is Jesus. Ephesians 5 tells us that we're the bride to the groom. 
And these images, these metaphors give us, they're all to aid our understanding of how secure this relationship is and what it's intended to provide for us, but also what it's intended to signify. But as we look at this passage, we're in John 15, and it's not real difficult to discern the meaning of the passage. We don't have to look at this from 20 different angles to kind of crack open. What does Jesus really mean when he said this? There's going to be a couple of phrases that we might trip over. But for the most part, it's really clear. Jesus is saying, I'm the supply. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And we'll talk a little bit more about what the father does as the vine dresser. But there are branches involved in the story. There are true branches and false branches. There's no blending of the two is what he tells us. And the way that we'll know which is which is the fruit that they produce. So it becomes really clear in our understanding what Jesus is trying to communicate here. But it gets a little difficult for us to accept perhaps the weight that comes with this message. Verse 8 tells us that kind of the crux of what Jesus is getting at here. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What the passage is exposing for us is the true nature of salvation. And this, this true nature of salvation is meant to be an encouragement to us. It's meant to be an assurance builder. It's meant to be the thing that we would in turn praise the Lord over. And as the verse says, that we would give him glory or we would give him praise and applause and point out his fame and recognize his goodness. That's all wrapped up in that word glorified. You see the difficulty though of Jesus teaching when we start hearing things like good branches, bad branches, thrown away, cast into the fire and stuff. The difficulty of Jesus teaching is not often our understanding of it, but it's our willingness to accept its meaning. So let's go into this passage a little bit deeper and talk about what Jesus was getting at and see what it means for you and me to discover the nature of salvation through all the characters, if you will, at play that Jesus is listing for us. He starts right off by saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And I think this would be a great place for us to begin because this is John's point all through his writing. He tells us in John in uh, chapter 20, he says, the reason I'm writing all of these things is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by, and I'm going to just insert a word here and that by simply believing you may have life in his name. All of this starts with more than just our recognition that Jesus is who he says he is, but our investment in it, our belief, our willingness to adhere to it, to follow, to take the next step into that relationship. That we begin to believe that he is the true vine of which he says about himself. You know, Jesus has been saying, I am a lot. Well, I shouldn't say a lot, but six significant times before this one in the Gospel of John. It's a, it's a title that goes back to the children of Israel when the, the, when God was ready to raise up a leader and lead his children out of slavery. He says to Moses, go and do this, go and lead the people out. And Moses is starting to doubt. He's starting to question. And he says, well, when they start asking me in whose name do I come and do all this, what am I supposed to say? How do I address you? How do I make you known to them? And he says, all you have to tell them is I am sent me. I am that I am. It's not a phrase that you and I would think is all that descriptive. Sounds a little Popeye-ish. So tempted to do an impression right now. I won't. Stick to the notes. We got a lot to cover. What is God saying that I am that I am has sent you? He's saying, I don't need to answer to any of them about who I am. I am my nature. I am my character. I am the revelation of who I am. And they'll know it soon. Moses, go tell him that. 
So when Jesus starts pointing out in the around the teaching of the Sabbath in chapter 5, where he says that God gave the Sabbath to man to help manage life and to do what was right. God doesn't answer to the Sabbath so I can heal whomever I want, whenever I want, because I'm God. I don't answer to that. Or when he says, uh, the, I glorify the Father just as the Father glorifies me in chapter 8, they start going, well, how is that supposed to work? We give everything to the Father, and you're saying he's giving you glory back? That would sound idolatrous, and of course it would be if he weren't God himself. Chapter 10, he says, the Father and I are one, and that's what really tripped their trigger, and that's what really freaked them out. And those that knew what he was saying knew, this man is equating himself to be God. And they sought to kill him because of that. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's making a very significant statement to his disciples and to us. He said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the door, the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. In John 8, the I am, Jesus, said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, which means you will not uh, receive forgiveness, that you will go to an eternity in hell. Why? Because you didn't receive the forgiveness made available to you and decided instead to live in your own flesh. You will die in your sins. Why? Because we didn't believe. We say, that sounds so easy. Uh, well, I can't do enough in that. It doesn't, it doesn't propel me down the road of my desire for activity and to prove that I'm, I'm all in and all this kind of stuff. Why can't I do enough? Why can't God just accept my works and call it good? And that's because of his holiness and because of his, his perfection. Nothing that you and I offer would be enough. You and I are only separated from a literal health through belief. And that belief is in the person of Jesus Christ as God's own son, not Belief for the sake of believing, like we heard so much in the, in the stores around Christmas time when we were shopping and everything. If you just believe and it's just have faith and have hope and have a, a, a direction towards the future and everything. No, it's in the person of who Jesus is. The I am, all that he said that he is, all that he came to accomplish. Not someone who was born like the rest of us. Not someone who was just decent or moral, but the one who came to solve our biggest problem. The one who came to answer our biggest question. Can I be saved? That's the nature of the true vine. But I want us to see also the righteousness of the true vine. What is it that Jesus brings to the table? What does he bring to the equation that rescues us? And we've heard these images. We, we know that he's our shepherd that cares for us and protects us and feeds us. He's the bread of life. The water that satisfies our thirsty soul through the Holy Spirit. And he's the light to our darkness. And when we come to the vine, we might be tempted to think that he gave us this, this imagery because of some of the cool applications that we can make from it. And these are, I think, right applications. We can point out the fact that this proves that Jesus was humble because uh, not that I know a lot about vine growing, but I do know that all plants and stuff, depending on how low they are to the ground, need propping up if they're to still get the air and the, and, and to breathe and to, and to flourish and things. And so there's a humility that comes with being a vine that someone's got to come and lift you up because you're low to the ground. And so we've seen this in scripture that Jesus humbled himself and became in the form of a servant so that would fit the imagery that we have. It would fit our imagery that we have in scripture of our union with Christ because he's the vine and we're the branch and we're attached and the sap comes in and we abide vice versa, all this kind of stuff. That's definitely there. We've already seen that it's to point out our, our responsibility for fruit bearing, that it will be there if we're in Christ, there will be visible produce. It helps us see our dependence on him, how we belong to him. All of these things are, are good applications and true in the text, but I think they're secondary to the point that Jesus is making. 
And so let's spend just a little bit of time on the primary point here and see how it informs everything else. The most immediate application that we should make is something that wouldn't necessarily jump out to us because we weren't first century Jews, but perhaps in the conversation that Jesus was having, uh, and they were maybe near vineyards on their way to the garden, but they certainly were probably within the shadow, although there was night, uh, they were within the shadow of the great temple kind of courtyard, and the gate that was there was, in, was, was dressed with this massive, ornate vine. It wasn't even really a real vine as much as it was constructed and had all these beautiful, precious materials and jewels and everything like that. It was a very significant image to the Jews. God originally planted a vine that had failed to uphold his standard. That's what the Old Testament spells out for us time and time again. Israel was the vine that God intended to use to point everyone towards salvation in him. The prophet Isaiah, this is perhaps the most relevant portion of scripture to back up what Jesus is saying here in Isaiah 5. So let's read it together. Seven verses here. He says, let me sing. This is Isaiah writing now. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, this is, this is God. This is the vine dresser. This is the husbandman, the farmer. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard for that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, what did it, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are its pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness but behold an outcry. When I, when I see this and I hear Jesus' description of his father being the vine dresser and you, you see the care and the pride that would have gone into just being able to show off this incredibly flourishing vineyard encased in this safe and secure stone wall. And you would imagine the one who had cultivated it and spent all those hours and years and everything just be like, come and, and see it and enjoy it. The pride that he wanted to have through all of the works that he did for Israel, the rescue, the provision, everything. He wanted them to be sort of that, that, that city set on a hill to where everyone could look and say, wow, hasn't the great God of Israel done amazing things for his children? But instead it only produced his grief. He wasn't able to show it off like he wanted to because they had failed. He provided everything for Israel to make it grow in righteousness and justice. He wanted salvation to come to all who would attach themselves to Israel's God. And so as Jesus is no doubt looking at this great structure that gives them all this national pride of we're the people of God. We're the vine. Look, he said it. They're missing all of the the ways that the vine was used in the scriptures as like this statement of condemnation, this statement of you missed what I intended for you. You failed in all of those things. And here Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, the one who will actually get the job done, you will see that I am the true vine, not the one that failed. Not the one who's failed over and over and over again. And that's where you and I start going, okay, so now I'm starting to see the nature of my salvation is if I, if I believe and trust in the one who is the only one that can get it done, every time I fail and fall short, I trust and lean in him. And he's the one that takes care of it. He's the only one that can get the job done. He is the true vine. Israel had passed on this. 
despite all their opportunity. John 1 had told us at the beginning of the gospel that he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. They failed to see that even despite their failure, God had sent them Jesus. That salvation, as Jesus would say, has come from the Jews. He was born amongst them, but they didn't accept him. So God started, God had established, I should say, early on in his vine dressing with the, with the, uh, with the people of Israel. He started to establish to them sort of the parameters of, you've got to make sure that you don't give yourselves over to other gods. I'm the one that's going to take care of your vine. I'm going to trim you. I'm going to prune you. I'm going to make sure you're healthy. You stick with me and we'll get this done. And in Exodus 20, he says, you shall not bow down to or serve them. He's talking about other gods, other idols. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children in the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. As I picture this, this, this passionate sort of, um, in, in, a, in a lovingly aggressive sort of way, this vine dresser who's like, that's my pen right there and all of those vines and everything that they're, they're dependent on me for their health and he's going to check them day, noon and night and he's going to make sure they're healthy. They've got everything they need. Why wouldn't he be jealous? Why wouldn't he be protective? Why wouldn't he make sure that nothing could get in and, and destroy it? Or he's going to snip away all the stuff that's kind of cancerous to the health of the vine and everything. So he tells him, he says, don't replace me with any other gods. Because I'm a jealous God and I will remove them. I am the, I am the true vine dresser in this. So we are to believe that Jesus is the true vine for all that he says about him and his father and the role that they play and who they are in their character and nature. But we're also to bear the fruit of the true vine. So let's go back into our text. In just the beginning of verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6 backs us up. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. It's clear from our text here, and the reason why we're taking extra time in this is this is the type of thing that will trip us up. Is we'll say, okay, so does that mean I, I, I maybe I started off well and I was a true branch for a while and then some disease came in, affected me and knocked me off and I'm now a false branch. What's going on here? Remember the context of Judas. Jesus has just sent away the one who was, was, was mirroring, mirroring all their actions, was looking like them, behaving like them. They all thought he was one of them. To the extent when Jesus kept saying, and one of you is a devil, because he knew from the beginning. They all started going, well, which one is it? Is it I hope it's not me. See, can you start relating to our biggest question of ever? I hope it's not me. I hope he knows I'm true. I hope he knows I'm faithful. I hope he knows I'm putting in all the necessary work in order to be in a relationship with him. See the error in the, the ways that we make those statements. Jesus says, no, one of you is a devil. None, one of you was never attached from the beginning. You're a false branch. They don't know it. Because he said, if you're not in me, and so they're thinking, well, all of us are in Christ. I mean, Jesus put Judas in charge of the money. You don't get more trustworthy than that, right? He must be doing the right thing. There isn't a lot about Jesus other than I'm a Judas, other than what we see in hindsight, that would indicate that maybe there was the potential of failure. If anything, we'd probably be looking suspiciously at Peter, kind of going, "You're the one that keeps stepping in it, buddy." If anyone's if anyone's capable of eventually becoming a false branch, it's Peter. Sort of. It's a little unfair to the whole story of Peter and all that he intended, but that's really where our minds go. Judas was under the radar. There's a kind of a, a thing going on here in the language when it says like a branch in verse six. Could it also say that like the branch, uh, uh, that uh, like a branch or like the branch uh, that it gets thrown away and withers. It really is indicating for us that it never belonged in the first place. Now we start to get a little bit closer to this idea of those that are 
trying to live out their faith or perhaps have gone through a season of not being as close with God as they once were and starting to go, oh, I must be a false branch. What's going on? And we beat ourselves up. We totally neglect and forget the grace of God that we just sang about this morning that Gus prayed us through about this idea of stop relying on ourselves and trust more in the grace of God. This is a false branch. He was never attached from the beginning. We've talked about this a little bit when we were going through the story of Judas is that he perhaps had a more of a political mindset and was thinking that um, Jesus as the as the Messiah was going to come in and, and right the ship and un, uh, upend Rome and and get Israel back on its feet and be a nation and everything. And he's thinking, if I'm his right-hand man or if I'm right there in the audience, then I'm going to be a part of the, the new wave of leadership and things. And Judas could have had any kind of of motivation at the beginning that would have, if we had seen into his heart, we could have said, see, he never really just said, I'm believing in Jesus because he's got the words of eternal life. I want to follow him, whatever he has for me. That wasn't in Judas's heart. There are professors of faith and possessors of faith in Christ. Judas was simply professing. I think sometimes our doubts, we wonder if we're the Judas. Sometimes it comes from a place of, I'm going to be careful how I say this because I don't want to make it sound like there's sin in humility and vice versa. But I think sometimes it does come from a place of honesty and humility and looking at the fact you don't really measure up to the type of Christian you think God accepts. You don't think you're doing as well as your friend over here or your cousin does this or something and you're thinking, I'm not that type of believer, so maybe I'm not the real deal. And a lot of times what we do is we we undercut ourselves or our position in Christ because we're looking at the effort and the work we bring to the table. Sometimes we get into the season of doubt or wondering if we're really in the vine and the vine is in us because we've allowed other things to kind of come in and crowd out our heart, kind of like these vineyards. Things start to attack our branches a little bit. And we've said to the pruner, the vine dresser is like, no, I just want a, real, a little bit of time to play this out. And, and God is a jealous God is like, but I'm coming in eventually. You need to know this. I'm coming in. I'm going to start snipping away. I'm going to make sure for your own health and for my own glory, we're going to get this right. And we go through those seasons where we kind of go, I don't feel as close to the Lord as I once did. And we start equating that to like somehow I can lose what I once had as though it depended on me to begin with. But these false branches will be, will be put out, they'll be piled up, they'll dry up so they burn quick. But there are real branches. There are true branches. And those true branches have a responsibility, but they also receive a reward. So going back to our text in verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit, he... Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. We would think, wait a second, I'm already doing things that he's acknowledged are good for me to do. So he's going to leave me alone, right? It's going to let me live my life. I'm producing fruit, so now he's giving me room to run. But the, the vine dresser, the one who knows how to do this the best, says, no, you're producing fruit. I'm concentrating my attention on you. I'm going to snip away a little bit more, and we're going to send this in the right direction. Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So in verse 4, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing, or at least not anything that matters to the Lord. Jesus says, here's here's what I want you to do. If you're a branch, stick. Wait, that's a bad pun. I I honestly did not mean that. It's terrible. Wish I had thought of that. That would have been, I'll save that for my book one of these years. If you're, if you're in me, stay, remain. Abide means something that stays put, stays where it is, continues in a fixed state. 
The path to God's true blessings, what he really wants to produce for fruit in your life, begins with you resisting your typical temptation to take off. That once it gets uncomfortable or once the, the, um, the, the down the road kind of view isn't as attractive as, as what some of the other people are doing who are not pleasing God and everything, the tendency is to go, I don't really want to see this out. I'd really rather just have Jesus kind of in a category who comes in and informs my life from time to time or bails me out of a jam or when someone's, you know, sick or something like that, I lean on him then. This idea of sticking and staying, even though the path looks really ugly and painful, I'm out. In most of my conversations where marriages have failed or they're on the brink of breaking up or something like that, here's what I've found. You know, sometimes I hear, um, People that are first responders talk about the difference between the people that make it and the people that don't. They usually demonstrate this characteristic or something like that. Same thing when it comes to this. Those that, that, that come in for biblical counsel because the marriage is about to do this or there's already been a violation or we don't know what to do with it. Those that start off by saying, I don't like this. This is ugly and scary. I just want you to tell me what would please the Lord with my next step. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, that's very few and far between. For the most part, when we're in trauma and we're dealing with tragedy and things, those those kind of unrehearsed things don't fall off our lips. Most of the time, what I hear is, tell me what God will allow me to do next. That will either make myself feel better, get myself out of a bad situation or something like that. You tell me sort of the letter of the law I can satisfy to get God off my back and I'll, I'll know, kind of like I'm the Pope, like I can just say, go and do this and you'll be okay. But instead, if I say, I don't really have a lot of options here. All I want is to glorify God and I'm not happy about this. I don't like where this is going. I don't think that what we have together is pleasing to the Lord, but I know I can still glorify him. What's my next step? What do I do? That, that response, that attitude going into the thing makes all the difference in the world. It's reminiscent of what the, what the disciples, our buddy Peter said to Jesus back in John chapter six. Jesus was saying to them all of these really harsh and sort not harsh, but difficult to swallow heavy concepts. And he was couching it in phrases like this in verse 53 he says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And it's like, Jesus, say it differently. That's not going to go down well. And um, we need you to clarify. So again, a couple thousands of years later, we look at this. Oh, we know what he meant. But at the time, aren't you thinking like, Jesus, know your audience, say it differently, soften the blow, explain what I really mean by this is metaphorically. What does he say in verse 54? Nope. Double down. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jump down to verse 66. What's the reaction to this? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why? Because what he said was difficult, uncomfortable, really kind of confusing in what he meant. And they said, this isn't the path that we, we thought we were going for bread multiplier, fish multiplier. You know, we were thinking maybe the next thing he's going to do is part the waters and everything. We heard rumors that he walked on them and all these kinds of, that's what we wanted. Now he's starting to talk about all these gross things and making it seem like we have to really be so invested in him that we're literally eating him and drinking his blood and everything. It was just uncomfortable and disturbing. So they said, we're out. So verse 67 Jesus said to the 12, so you joining them? Do you want to go away as well? But Simon Peter answered, this is our response for everything. This, this needs to be, this is where fruit is produced. He says, uh, Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You, you are the only one that has anything that I really need. You are the one that has the words of eternal life, both eternal life here and now and in the future. So where in the world would we go? Perhaps Peter was saying this by faith. Maybe he was a little wigged out by what Jesus said. But, but Peter here is abiding. He's staying connected. He says, yeah, I'm a little squirreled out by this too. I didn't like the terminology you used. And now I'm a little concerned that the thousands that were following us have all fled and everything. So yeah, it looks a little bleak, but I'm staying. I, I'm going to get connected to you because you're the, you're the words of life. You're the, you're the vine. You're the, you're the sap giver to my branch. Where would I go? 
You know, Jesus isn't always going to make sense to us. He's not always going to say the things that sound good or that we'd be like, this is what it meant to follow Jesus. I just feel so connected. Jesus fits my morning devotion routine. I got my coffee and my little book and my everything like that. And so this is what it means to walk in faith. Every once in a while, he's going to come at us with like, are you going to be able to follow me? And we're going to have to swallow hard and go, yeah. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't know where you're sending me, but yeah, I'm in. And then what happens is once we, once we stick, once we stay, we mature into just staying because I don't know where this is going to go till where we can express like Peter and say, I don't want to go anywhere else because all I desire is what you give me. Back to our tree metaphor. Have you ever walked by a, an apple tree and heard it groaning because it was trying to pop out a really big apple? Like a labor pain or something? Just like, I'm trying here. You ever heard a fruit tree struggle to produce fruit? And this is kind of what we think it is. It's like, I gotta try harder. I gotta embrace this lag. You know, and all of a sudden, look at that fruit. I don't, I don't want to be guilty of kind of abusing grace and making it sound like all this stuff is so easy. But isn't there a part of this life we just gotta relax about from time to time? And just say, my job is to stay connected to him. He's going to lead me where he wants me to go. He's going to tell me what he wants me to hear. He's going to tell me through this. I've got to get very familiar with the words of eternal life that are pouring into my soul like that sap. And I'm going to let him have his perfect work in me. I'm just going to stay connected while he's pouring into me. The fruit and what it looks like, how big it is, how often it comes, that's up to him. I'm just a branch. So... Jesus is the true vine. The vine dresser comes and, and prunes. We have the responsibility of being a true va- branch instead of a false branch through belief. And I've been saying that the harder part of us kind of being cultivated as these vi- as these branches and producing fruit is allowing the vine dresser, the, the farmer, to do his job because he comes at us with the clippers or the shears or whatever it is, the the knife and the tools that he uses, and we're like, don't get too close. But he purges us and makes us clean. He dresses the vine to remove the things that hinder your growth and the production of fruit that he wants in your life. And, and, And honestly, what you want in your life too. How does he do this? What are the tools that the vine dresser uses? Let's go through this. I, I, I hesitate to rush through this because they're so important, but understand that we'll be repetitive over these things um, in the weeks to come too. But the first tool in his hand, the clippers that he uses is the scriptures as we've talked about. Hebrews 4.12 gives us a really close analogy to this. It says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now we start to understand that God's word is uncomfortable for us at times. It gets cutting into our souls, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The more I give myself to God's word, the more I saturate my brain with it, and try to go through not just, and there's nothing wrong with this, not just checking off I got through my four chapters to get through the book in, in by the end of the year, but actually taking some time either in that exercise or separately to really ponder what is the word of God saying to me. It gets into all those places that I don't know about myself. It gets into all those areas that I can't see going on in my own life. It starts to wake me up to them allows me to surrender that to the Holy Spirit and say, okay, keep producing your fruit, keep cutting away, keep trimming off that that weird part of my branch. I don't want it if it's taking away from the growth and the, and the produce that you want to provide in my life. The word of God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Second tool that the pruner uses is trials and suffering. You knew we're in church. We got to talk about how to suffer well, Right? It's the way it goes. But there's a difference here. Rather than just acknowledging their presence and their reality, anybody with half a brain can look around the world and say, whether you're in Christ or out, you're going to go through suffering. The difference is whether or not we receive it, whether or not we accept it, whether or not we look to it as a useful instrument and a tool in our life so that we don't waste time pushing against it and trying to avoid it as though somehow we could. So through either sickness or persecution or loss 
of all different kinds, we end up having that pruning shear of the cultivator in our lives to challenge us. Now, anybody that's telling you in Christianity that you should just grin and bear it and smile through it and everything is is a moron. Um, the reality is suffering is suffering because it is terrible. Suffering is a thing that breaks God's heart because he created everything to be perfect. He started it off to be safe and pleasant and full of him and his relationship. And then sin broke all of that and messed it all up. So his heart breaks every time our hearts get broken. But he is purposed to use it. He knows its value in our life. And so he will send it, dare I say, he will send it into our lives to use it to refine us and to improve us. We shared this a few weeks back that 2 Corinthians says, as Paul was asking for a relief from his suffering, God said to him again, instead, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And you might think, well, he's just talking about his insufficiencies. But no, he says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, but I'm also willing to welcome insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we know this too. We know after we've gone through trials and testings, if we've given them to the Lord and we've allowed them to do their perfect work in us, we come out humbler. We come out more relatable to other people who are going through difficulty. We come out more mature because we've been through a thing and we have a little bit more thickness to our skin and we're not expecting the world to bow at our feet all the time. We have more wisdom because we've learned how to navigate those waters that we didn't know previously. And we have a better anticipation that this isn't all there is, that it comes to an end, that we get rescued, we get relieved, we get put in a place where none of those things can ever touch us again, that being heaven. So then the difficult question for us is, would we have the faith to actually desire the pruning of God? Now, I don't mean, would you have the faith to look forward to it? Would you have the faith to smile and laugh at all the pain and the cutting? But would you actually say, I know what it produces. I know what God intends. So I'm going to stop making all my prayers about how to protect me from suffering. And instead, Lord, make me the follower of you. Make me the fruit bearer of you that you intended for me while I go through this. You see how that's totally different in our dependence on God. One is get me out of this jam. One is make me whatever you want me to be. You're the vine dresser. Let's just read the last part of this passage and close our time. Verse 7, he says, If you abide in me and my words in you, this is back to John 15, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish. If you abide in me. So there's conditions here. If you abide in Christ and his word is abiding in you, you are going to pray for the things that will produce those that fruit. And so, yes, he's going to answer that prayer. Every time. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You see the progression here? There's, he says that you'll have fruit in your life and you'll have more fruit in your life and it'll be much fruit. And we're not talking about the stuff that is obvious to all all of us. Like, oh, that person's a massive fruit producer. You know, it, it shows up in their bank account. It shows up in the fact that, you know, they have uh, two rows in front and back of them full of all these people they're bringing to Christ and all these external kinds of things that we would think what it is. It's that, it's that God is doing something inside of us and is producing an outworking in our lives that is even convincing to us that you'd have much fruit. Verse 10 was, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
We can't finish a message uh, talking about the fruit that the, the, that the Lord produces without going to Galatians 5 because this is the, the best description of anytime somebody says, um, I'm trying to have a spirit-filled life or these people really practice the presence of the Holy Spirit. These people really believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and everything. Always in your mind, it'd be great to memorize this. Go back to Galatians 5 to see what the presence and the outpouring of the Spirit looks like for the church today. Verse 22, these are the less, you know, dare I say the word, you know, this less sexy version of what the spirit can do. All the stuff that we look to are all the things that are really impressive and big and everything. God says, no, the fruit of the spirit, the singular fruit, this all kind of grows into one big lump together is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. If, if the spirit is, is, is raging through my life, maybe I won't be pulling dead bodies off the ground. Maybe I won't be healing sicknesses as soon as I touch a forehead or something, but you will see that I am patient, that I am joyful, that I am demonstrating love, that I am gentle towards those who are angry and hostile and mean against me. I'm showing self-control. Jesus says, that's the fruit that will produce. If you abide in my love, you will walk in my love. You will walk down the street. You will sit in your living room and you'll just be like, I really do feel the presence of the Lord in my life. I fail. I get it wrong. I'm not real good at this. I'm a Peter half the time or whatever. But but I know he is producing a work in me. How do I know that? Because he's the true vine. He's the one that supplies my need. And this does create in us a full joy rather than a happiness that depends on happenings. We have a, we have a joy that is dependent on the vine dresser and the true vine being active in our life. So yes, the answer, the reason why we took so long this morning is because you and I need to be able to answer the most important question in our life. Can we have assurance of our salvation in Christ? And the answer is yes, the true vine is able to provide that assurance. And my questioning of that assurance will get a little wonky from time to time based on my faithfulness. But if I'm a true branch, he will cut those things out of my life and prune and shape me towards health. And in time, I will be able to demonstrate fruit. That's what's available and what's present in the life of every believer. But there's a warning to the fake branch. There's the warning to the one who thinks they're killing it. They're doing great. I, Jesus is lucky to have me. Or uh, maybe there's an advantage this church can give me. And all this kind of stuff is the warning to the fake branches is you need to believe in Jesus as your only hope and not on yourself. Because that does only last for a time. It eventually gets exposed to be, to be fake, thrown into a bush, and burned away. Would you stand and... Close our time in prayer together. Lord, I want to thank you, Father, for all that you've said to us in this passage. There's so much more, Lord, that we could see and uncover. And I pray, Lord, that those that are here this morning that, that need the assurance of their salvation, which is true of all of us, Lord, if we're being honest, help us, Lord, to find it in your provision, in your nature, in your promise to us not in whether or not we check all the boxes off perfectly. But Lord, we want to strive. We want to abide in you. We want to produce the fruit that is pleasing to you. So help us, Lord, with that. Make us receptive to that supply and excited, Lord, to show your results more than anything we could ever come up with on our own. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.